Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. So gang, we um, have been doing this new-ish series for a couple weeks now where we're looking at some of the hard sayings of people throughout the New Testament. Um, We spent a few weeks looking at hard sayings of Jesus, and so this week we're looking at other writers within the New Testament, and I'm going to turn things over to Sarah to tell us kind of where we're going with this next part of this series. So this week we are starting to look at Paul. Because Paul, as we know, wrote a rather large chunk of the New Testament. um, And he is sometimes difficult to swallow. (laughs) So we are going to be looking specifically at one chapter in one letter that Paul wrote to kind of just start us off with. Uh, So we are going to spend our day in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Maybe before we get into the, the particulars of what's going on in this particular letter, it's worth saying that one of the things that makes reading Paul's letters in the New Testament a little bit complicated is much of what he wrote is occasional literature, writing, writing to particular people with particular mm-hmm. uh, circumstances, and that they are written uh, with a particular context in mind. And for 2,000 years now, Christians have been sort of... Uh, spinning out uh, how how do these things written for one community in one particular time affect us in all sorts of different times and circumstances who don't live in the Roman Empire anymore, uh, who uh, have modern science and technology and who uh, are capable of reading on our own. I mean, like, there's a whole bunch of ways that our world is different, and it makes it a challenge sometimes to sort of put our, our brains back and do what's going on in the first century and in this particular community, not just the city, but what's going on in the particular congregation that Paul's writing to, on top of the fact that Paul's a human being who's got his own stuff to deal with. Um, we, we sometimes get glimpses of the psychological wrestlings of this guy who sometimes uh, is so overjoyed with life, he's, you know, rejoicing again, I say rejoice, and sometimes he's uh, almost ready to die, and I mean, he wishes Jesus would take him, um, and wrestles uh, a lot. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things going on here that makes it harder for us to, uh, I don't know, like, begin to tackle anything Paul says. And remember, these are letters, like you were saying, Steve, so they're written to a particular set of people in a particular place, and the we have Paul's responses to their original letters. Yeah. And so we're missing half the conversation, too, which also adds some difficulty to anything Paul writes. Right. It's a yeah. little bit like one of those old Bob Newhart uh, comedy routines where he would pretend to be someone on the phone with someone else, and you have to guess what the rest of the conversation yeah. was just by his deadpan replies, uh, which is delightful comedy, but it's sometimes really hard to <laughs> sleuth back and be the detective what was the question that this was the answer to. And sometimes this is easier than other times. Yeah. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 being a great example, it begins, like that chapter begins with, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is not well for a man, it, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. And then he kind of just goes on. And so, um, but, you know, we kind of can gather from context that maybe they asked about marriage, maybe they asked about people living together, maybe, you know, how do we interact with each other now that we are Christians, we are following Jesus, and we kind of expect him back any day now. Yeah. Um, but, like, in this particular case, we can kind of guess what they wrote about. Mm-hmm. Other times, not so much. We have no idea. <laughs> Paul is just writing stuff, right? And that's a good point. That sometimes Paul will, you know, explicitly say, "Now I'm gonna, I'm getting to the part of my letter where I answer your fan mail, or you know, I'm, mm. I'm answering the questions that you raised." But even there, 
sometimes even knowing where a question is coming from um, is is challenging. You know, like we talked before uh, in a couple episodes ago about when the uh, religious experts come to Jesus asking about divorce, and they're coming from the angle of the assumption we're allowed to throw our wives away when we don't like them anymore, right, Jesus? So Jesus' answer that in some ways sounds like a very hard-line position, uh, actually it has something to do with protecting people who are being treated as disposable otherwise and had something that, that treated uh, women in a very high position rather than, uh, yeah, you can throw them away because they have, who cares, they're just your wives. Uh, and, and again, there, there, are, uh, there are other voices of authority in the first century who took positions a lot closer to that. Uh, and knowing where the question's coming from uh, helps you understand a little bit of where the, where the answer is coming from and what it's trying to address as well. Um, so, okay, you, you, you've helpfully opened the can of worms at the beginning of this chapter in 1 Corinthians. Again, we're in 1 Corinthians 7, one of Paul's letters in sort of a whole slew of correspondence they apparently had. Uh, and Paul's answering questions they have raised that seem to be about how Christians now deal with marriage and relationships. Uh, let, let's start there. What, 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 um, what, how do we deal with what Paul has to say? Because even his opening sentence is sort of a jaw-dropper. Yes, it is. Um, but yeah, it, the so the first kind of chunk of First um, Corinthians seven is um, basically it is well for a man not to touch a woman, but because of cases of sexual immora- immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And basically, then kind of goes into that marital relationship that you know a man does not own his own body, but his wife does. And a wife does not own her own body, but her husband does. And so, you know, people are married. Yeah. Go ahead and be married. Right. Um, but you should only be married to one person. You know, mm-hmm. don't have multiple spouses. Right. And maybe in the background of all this, you kind of uh, uh, gave a nod toward this, Sarah. In the background of probably any of Paul's thinking, and maybe even any of the New Testament uh, first century community, was this sort of default assumption that Jesus could be coming back at any day, mm-hmm. and how did that change how they lived their lives? Because as people were coming to faith, and again, this is an era not of, I go to church because my grandparents went to church. There wasn't three, you know, two generations back of Christianity. There was a handful of disciples who were beginning to spread out into the wider world and get other disciples, and part of the message was, not only we believe Jesus died and rose again, but he's coming again at any moment, and when he comes, all will be restored, and so one of the underlying questions is then, okay, then should I bother living with my ordinary life, or is everything put on hold because Jesus come back tomorrow? And so there were some who were like, if Jesus is coming back, you shouldn't even bother getting married because he's going to come back and then I'll get thrown out the window anyway, or um, he's, he's uh, coming back tomorrow, so don't bother paying your electric bill. I mean, there were some people who just leave your life behind kind of thing. Yeah, because what's the point in planning a future if you think that there isn't going to be much of a future, right? Like, why get married and start having children if Jesus is going to come back when your kid's only, like, a year old? And, you know, it's that's a tricky, tricky thing to navigate. Right, right. And so because there's that assumption underneath maybe maybe all of Paul's writing is the sort of urgent, the Lord is near, Jesus is coming again. And he, he doesn't mean that in a fearful way. Sometimes that, that gets spun out in pop culture today of, oh, when Jesus comes, that's something we're afraid of. The, the New Testament writers are like, hooray, Jesus is coming. Finally, all the rotten stuff is going to be put right. But they also understood it as this major overturning and upheaval of mm. the ordinary life you know, uh, situations. And so, yeah, should, should I bother... Should I should I bother buying green bananas because is Jesus going to come before they, they get ripe? Um, 
and Paul and Paul's response is, it's sort of it's sort of a both and kind of a like a look. If if you're married, that's fine. Continue to be married. But he also has the sense of yeah, Jesus could come back at any moment. So don't feel obligated. Don't feel like you have to. And so he's got the sense of there are there are commitments you make when you're married to somebody mm-hmm. that um, become a challenge to whatever else God might call you to. Uh, and that's a difficult thing for Paul to say out loud. And yet he's he's someone who, as far as we know, isn't married himself. And, and He's not, at least at the time of this writing, because verses 8 and 9, which I think are some of the more hilarious verses mm-hmm, in this chapter, mm-hmm. to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain unmarried as I am. But if they are not practicing self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. <laughs> yeah, so there's, like, Paul, in this instance, and other times, will point to himself as an example in ways that might make us blush. We've been taught good Protestant humility of you never point to yourself as a positive example. And Paul's okay with being like, look, there's some perks, there's some good things about the way I'm living my life. I don't have to worry about the tension between, uh, you know, being in, in prison and, and who's going to provide for my family. I mean, like, mm-hmm. and, and I, I get it. As, as much as it can be funny to poke fun at the ego of somebody who's like, take a look at my example. Imitate me the way I'm imitating Christ. Um, he's, he's got a point, especially as someone who knew that his life and his calling was not only going to be in being uprooted potentially every couple of months to go to a new town or new place and get rocks thrown at him on a regular basis, but that he was perfectly willing to be in prison for a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to hold on to your convictions or it's hard to keep up your, your sort of uh, fierce, fiery commitment if you have kids at home who are hungry and saying, how come daddy isn't coming home? Oh, he's still in jail. I mean, like, that that's tough. So I get Paul's mm-hmm. point there. And it seems to me like at the, at the in the big picture, he seems to be saying, look, it's possible to serve Jesus in either set of circumstances. You can be married, you can have families and all that. There's lovely, wonderful things about that. But if you're not married, there's a lot of things that you don't have to that, that you don't have to also worry about at night. About uh, am I gonna am I making enough money being a tent maker and a traveling wandering apostle mm-hmm. to put food on the table for my kid? I mean, Paul could go without because he also didn't have the commitment of feeding kids and keeping the lights on. One of the things that makes that challenging then is as we read through this this text, is we sort of have this default assumption of being a good Christian means at some point you have this cookie-cutter way family alert, you know, you have a, a spouse and 2.5 kids and, all, and a white picket fence. And maybe it's a challenge or, or refreshing or whatever to hear that Paul's assumption, the New Testament's assumption, isn't that being a good Christian equals everybody will have a spouse and 2.5 kids and a white picket fence. It's fine, but it's also fine not to. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but I have uh, heard plenty of uh, religious-sounding voices um, who sort of treat Christianity like it's just a way of getting that picture of the cookie-cutter good life, that all mm-hmm. good Christians get married by such and such a time, all good Christians have kids at such and such a time, all good kid, all good, you know, that kind of thing. And that even though it seems a little bit weird, maybe, that Paul's got this, not all Christians are going to look the same, um, or not all Christian families are going to look the same, um, and that that's not only, uh, well, I guess it's okay, but like Paul gets it. There are people who don't have... Uh, cert- you don't have a certain set of baggage or obligations when you don't have the additional family commitment, and there's also blessings to people that have families and kids, that, uh, other- and we need all of that together. As we continue into this chapter, though, we hit a little bump, at least for okay. me, it's kind of a bump on the road. Yeah, uh-huh. okay. Um, in verse 10, Paul goes on to talk to the married, and he says, To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord, that the wife... Um, 
The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does separate, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, I, and not the Lord, that if any believer has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And so we get this, you know, Paul saying, okay, this is the Lord speaking to you, and then now this is me yeah, speaking yeah, to you. Yeah. And, and so... You know, again, this is that continuation of the confusion and the hardness of Paul, you know, the hard sayings of Paul that we have to wrestle with right. in this chapter. And, oh, go ahead. And this is a particularly odd moment, I think, because he, he emphasizes that it's either him or God speaking and mm-hmm. giving the command. But I feel like the commands aren't that different, right? Because the yeah. first one is, um, you know... You should not separate from your spouse. And then the second one is, even if your spouse is an unbeliever, don't separate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's one of those odd things of like, why do you feel the need to emphasize which one's coming from God and which one's not? Like, I, I, I suppose it's because Paul is taking that extra step. But I think that the emphasis of who is giving the command feels odd to me. Mm-hmm. I think, and I've, I've always uh, had this assumption that when he says, I, not the Lord, that this is a reference to the historical Jesus, and that he's got evidence of, there's a Jesus saying about the teaching on not divorcing, uh, mm-hmm. but he, there is no saying of Jesus, uh, of the historical Jesus, of whether Christians are allowed to divorce their unchristian spouses, because there is no Christian church. And at least that's, that suggests to me that this isn't Paul saying, I've got God's authority here, and I don't have God's authority on this other saying, but to say, I've got, there were teachings of Jesus, I mean, and they were floating around orally before anybody wrote them down. And presumably at some point, somebody sat down with Paul and said, hey, you've come to faith under the masses world, let's get you caught up with who this Jesus is, and here's the things he said and did. And certainly we get evidence from the book of Acts that Paul, at some points was in those circles and would have had the, the chance to get to talk with other Christians as well, that he wasn't just inventing this uh, this faith all up. Um, but the, there there are sayings of Jesus, we talked about mm-hmm. them before, and that I, I think it's it's more likely that Paul is saying, look, I've got a saying from Jesus about not uh, you're not allowed to throw away your spouse because she burned the soup. No, we stay married, uh, that we don't, people are not disposable. But the, a separate question might have arisen in Corinth of, well, what if you've got a case where uh, one person in a couple comes to faith and the other one doesn't? Should you get divorced because that's the Christian thing to do? And Paul, no, 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 no. If, they, if, if they're willing to stay in the marriage, stay in the marriage. Uh, and don't break up this relationship just because one person is a, is a, a follower of Jesus and the other one isn't. Um, but I, I guess I, it still raises the authority question in the sense of, like, Paul is clearly willing to make a distinction between, if Jesus said it like that's, that's the heart of our whole faith, is this, this Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul, in this weird way, sometimes will pull his authority when he's writing to people and be like, I'm an apostle for crying out loud, do what I say. And there's other times where he'll sort of back away and go like, look, I don't have a word on G- from Jesus on this one. So to, it's almost like he's invited to take it with a grain of salt. Um, and that's hard for us who... Uh, live in a culture, at least a church culture, where it's often, it's in between the covers of my Bible, it all has equal weight because it's the Bible, for crying out loud. Mm -hmm. And that's tough, because Paul himself seems to go, no, there's times where I trust the word of Jesus more than I trust, uh, this is just me trying to put two and two together here, folks. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. That's that's difficult, because it is so much more comfortable to have the certainty of, where the one Bible verse talks about this subject. We found the one verse, here's the answer, there it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Bible itself doesn't let us do that. And see, I think 
um, for me at least, you talking about the historical Jesus and how Paul's referring back to him helps me with this. Because it also makes me wonder, okay, this is the Lord saying this. Well, what was the Lord saying all these things that you wrote before this? Right, right, right. Yeah, it makes, you know, not that I, I question that Paul is necessarily writing things that, you know, God isn't saying through him, but it's just, I can see how some folks can come up to that, and they can come up to this verse and be like, well, the Lord says this. Yeah. Well, was the Lord, you know, then right, they're going to question right. everything else. So I like that historical Jesus, you know, pointing back to what Jesus says throughout the Gospels and through the early oral history of, you know, his life, like, yeah, we have clear sayings that this is what Jesus teaches. This, mm, he didn't say anything about. So I'm just going to take a guess and hopefully we're going in the same right path. Right. This this is one of those spots in Paul that it suddenly jars me out of my own head and reminds me that Paul didn't realize he was writing scripture. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's so easy to, because all of our scripture is bound up in one book, it's easy to kind of just keep reading it and, and think, oh yeah, this is... This is scripture, like, and then it's mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, Paul, when he was writing, he was just writing to this congregation in Corinth. He wasn't thinking that this would someday be bound up in the Bible. Yeah. Attached to, you know, M- Moses, and, because the Gospels hadn't even been written yet, and mm-hmm. um, so, like, he wasn't thinking that when he was writing this. And part of that is, in I think, because there was this assumption in the first century that if Jesus is coming any day now, we're not looking to create a new holy book here. We're trying to live out our faith and do the follow the Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, follow Jesus' example, live the Jesus way, uh, as long until we get other commands. Um, but if, yeah, at some point, the the church, as it sort of dug in for, oh, this could be a while, then collected these writings of Paul and writings of other early voices as well that they considered authoritative. We could have a whole conversation somewhere down the road about how we ended up with the Bible that we have. But uh, when Paul's writing, as you say, Sarah, yeah, he, Paul isn't thinking, oh, they're going to love this chapter, new new chapter heading, or, you know, he doesn't mm-hmm. even think, he, he thinks in terms of, I'm trying to do, we're trying to figure this out as we're going along. And Paul even wrestles with, why should anybody listen to me? I'm not one of Jesus' first hand-picked followers. So sometimes he has to tell the story again. But mm-hmm. I was on the road, and I, Jesus appeared to me, and I'm an apostle. And other times he'll be like, don't trust me on this. I got a word from Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. And again, that makes it difficult for us when we come to Paul's writings, uh, because it's sometimes hard for us to suss out what, where is the authority, what does this mean for us now here, where our contexts are, are different or similar. We could also say, uh, maybe in any circumstance, uh, whatever whatever year it is, don't throw people away. Don't don't treat mm-hmm. relationships, marriages, any relationship like people are disposable. Um, and at the same time, we have two thousand years worth of Christian history to say because Jesus could come at any time, it also means Jesus might not come. And so live your life. Um, in a way, it feels to me like the same wisdom that some of the prophets around the exile had to give to the people as well. There were some people when uh, Israel gets Judah gets carried away into Babylonian exile. There were some prophets, most of them were the false prophets, who said things like, this will be over quick, we're going to be home real soon, so don't even bother putting down roots in Babylon. And the less popular prophets, ones like Jeremiah, had to say things like, this is going to be a while, so pray for the peace of the city that you're in, because this is going to be home for a while, and have families, and have kids, and keep telling the stories, but we're going to be exiles for a while, we're going to live away from home, and get used to that. It's okay, we can still be God's people without a temple, without our own homeland, without any of that, we're going to have to figure out what that looks like. And that's a really important thing, that the, the people who lived in exile a lot of what was solid had to be thrown out the window and they did have to sort of live like, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, 
but it was okay that we're figuring this out as we go along. They held on to the important ancient stories, but the, a lot of a lot of what Judaism looked like had to be transformed in exile when they didn't mm-hmm. have a temple and priests mm-hmm. and kings and all that. Um, and they did it. And I think in a lot of ways, um, the New Testament community is a lot like that. In fact, they often use that imagery of seeing themselves as exiles living away from uh, their true country, uh, or that we're sort of the scattered exiles or resident aliens. Sometimes the New Testament will use that imagery for. And that means that we were trying to figure it out, and even in the first mm-hmm. century, I don't know, what what things do we still hold on to, um, no matter what time or place it is. Uh, and we, we still don't throw people away, but at the same time, live your life. And that means, yeah, you can have families and kids and jobs, and don't just quit your job because Jesus might come tomorrow. That's not good, faithful stewards to be there. I think we're so used to the systematic theology that most of us have grown up under. Like, you know, these are the. These are the things that Christians do. These are the things, you know, the Christians believe and all that. So we're so used to that and we forget that the New Testament writers, even throughout all the scripture, they're not writing a systematic theology. Right. They're not trying to work everything out and say, well, this is, you know, they're just recording stuff as it happens. Right. And they're trying to get this information down as quickly as they can so that they don't forget it. And then... We've taken centuries to come up with a systematic theology based on this, but sure. you know, as you said, Sarah, Paul wasn't writing scripture. At least he didn't he, realize he, he, he didn't was writing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and because of that, I, I guess like there's something that's living and almost like improvisational to mm-hmm. when you read Paul's letters that I don't think we often bring. I think I, again, I, as someone who comes out of the Lutheran tradition that is so interested in Paul, and sometimes it'll be like, yes, Paul thought this all out and had this. Like there's sometimes where Paul clearly is following a very long train of thought and making a systematic argument, but in, in particular, in the occasional portions of his letters, it's especially clear. They're figuring this out as they go along. Mm-hmm. And it's not like Paul says, well, let me conf- consult my systematic theology and then I'll give you the answer. He's wrestling with the situations mm-hmm. that are at hand, trying to figure this out as he's living his life out, too. And and knowing that, it doesn't make him less authoritative, but it does mean that we treat him like with uh, the same kind of sense of our, our job isn't just to pare it back or duplicate first century circumstances so we can do exactly mm-hmm. what they did back then, but to say... Okay, Paul took this sort of central core identity of what it is to follow Jesus and played it out in his own life. And so in our, in our circumstances, there may be things that are different, but how we play it out in our lives, knowing that some things are going to be common across them. We still don't get to treat people like they're disposable. Don't throw away your spouses. Uh, and that, yeah, it's okay if there are relationships where one person is a believer and one person isn't. Don't divorce somebody because they don't go to church or something like that work with them. And maybe that deep understanding, we don't know how long it will be until Jesus' grand coming again, so live your life in the meantime. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, live with that asterisk of remember what's most important. And if I'm living my whole life on, I, I can't wait till retirement, I'm going to save it till that 501k is so big, Jesus might come before I get to spend my you know, retirement. Jesus might uh, Jesus might come back before um, my kids are old enough to let us sleep in in the morning, you know. <laughs> um, and if that's true, then I have to be able to live like with a Right here in this in this moment now, what I do matters because Jesus mm-hmm. could come back at any moment. At the same time, I gotta keep living my life as well. Are, are there places further on in this chapter where it gets yet th- thornier or more complicated? Um, I think so. Because uh, again, as we have said, Paul's big thing is he thinks that Jesus is coming back mm-hmm. very, very, very soon. So you know, basically, if you're unmarried, stay unmarried unless you absolutely have to get married um, because you can't control yourself. But if you are married, don't divorce, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So uh, verse 20, I think, sums it up nicely. Let each of you remain in the condition in which you you were called. 
Um, in particular, he touches briefly on circumcision. You know, if you are uncircumcised, don't feel like you have to go ahead and get the cut. Um, you know, either way is fine with God. Whatever condition you arrived in is fine by Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he goes on with, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Even if you can gain your freedom, make use of your present condition now more than ever. So basically, if you are in slavery, just go ahead and stay a slave. Yeah. And I think that, especially as 21st century Americans, mm-hmm. that's really hard to hear because um, these were one of the verses that was used right. um, during the Civil War um, by the South right. about... Mm-hmm. Hey, yeah, no, even Paul's cool with slaves. Right. Um, and it's like, uh, that's... Um, right. And, okay. and, and that maybe opens the, the additional historical can of worms of, like, Am- uh, American practice of slavery was awfully different than what slavery looked like mm-hmm. in the Greek and Roman Empire. Correct, yes. This isn't the only place where Paul addresses the situation of slavery uh, and puts the pressure pretty heavily on a slave owner later on in the letter we call Philemon as well, sort of like twisting this, this guy's arm saying, I know you're going to do the right thing, wink, 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 wink. Like, he's, he's doing everything rhetorically and politely. He can't say, let him go, you moron. Um, <laughs> but uh, doing it as politely and, and apostolically as he can. Um, but yeah, it, I think part of, the, part of the way those verses have to be heard is, this is a writer who's convinced Jesus would come back tomorrow, and if I've got the possibility of spending my energy today, should I spend it on myself or should I spend it on mm-hmm. uh, the care of other people around me? And so Paul's like, if you're if you're free, use your freedom for other people. If you're enslaved, Jesus could come back tomorrow. But but yeah, that at some point the early the early church realized this is going to be a long haul, and maybe those words don't mean that slavery is on all circumstances. Oh yeah, we should just keep having slavery. It's cool because Paul said it once. Uh, yeah, and I, mm-hmm. I think again. There's there's the challenge of um, finding a verse, uh, con- not considering its context and using it to make it mean whatever you want it to mean. Uh, and maybe this is an especially powerful place to say, this verse might not have been as hard if we didn't have the 400 years of African-American slavery in American history, uh, and for maybe the first century where so many people that Paul's writing to are slaves. Mm-hmm. He's not writing to master so much as like, don't be violent, don't, I mean, don't, and maybe part of what he's saying, too, is we're not trying to start a violent slave revolution here like Spartacus. Uh, Christianity, as radical as it was in some ways, wasn't at any point advocating a a violent overthrow. Uh Uh, It was subversive in different ways, but then that means we're not going to take up arms to try and get ourselves free. Um, And, yeah, through the lens of American history, that, that got used as, well, see, African American slaves, Jesus wanted to be a slave, and it got used like that again and again. I mean, that's that's why there are important voices today, and maybe for the last uh, generation or two, who have said it's really important to discover the difference between slaveholder religion and the actual faith of Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that Paul got co-opted a lot of ways and sometimes gets made out to be a villain that Paul probably didn't intend to be, but uh, there's this whole other version of what Christianity, you know, quote-unquote says versus the in its context, Christianity isn't really endorsing slavery. <laughs> But yeah, that is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. <laughs> Lots of interesting things to read. So, okay. Uh, maybe nobody came to this conversation today listening thinking, boy, I'm really interested in what a first century writer had to say about marriage. Um, <laughs> but we, we do kind of hope that this sets the tone for, as we look at other interesting and weird passages from Paul, some of the challenges that are involved here. When we look at other verses that are confusing or difficult or frustrating, we not only have to deal with the historical context mm-hmm. of what's going on in Paul's day, the 
the fact that he's writing letters instead of just sort of mm-hmm. spouting proverbs or something like that. Um, though the intervening history and the way his words have gotten used or abused in the intervening centuries, and maybe even the uh, assumptions that first century Christians made that uh, we're not wrong for them to hold and that we don't abandon either today, but we have to sort of uh, see differently. That, yep, Jesus could come at any time, and at the same time, uh, it could be that Jesus doesn't come for another thousand or, you know, how, you know, it could be generations upon generations. And we have to live in that tension. Paul was living in that tension and he was putting all his money on. He's coming back tomorrow, so I don't need to, you know, start dating. Um, and we were here after 2,000 years going... It's okay to have families, and it's okay not to either way. Um, so we'll, we'll dig into other passages and future conversations, but uh, thanks for listening today. See you all. Bye.